0: Welcome to the This Is Reno podcast and radio show. We are broadcasting on KWNK 97.7 FM on Sunday mornings as well as on all major podcast apps. On today's show, we have a very special guest and a very special guest host. Lucia Starbuck is here with This Is Reno's photojournalist, Ty O'Neill. They discuss Ty's recent visit to Ukraine to cover the Russian invasion. Here are Ty and Lucia.
1: Hi, Ty. Thanks for joining me today.
0: Yeah. Hi, Alicia. It's good to see you.
1: So you just returned from Ukraine. Can you tell me a little bit about just the overview of your trip?
0: So I I hate to say it, but I actually don't exactly know how many days I was over there because especially when you're traveling alone, you just kind of lose track of what's happening. Um, but basically, I flew into Poland because uh, obviously the airspace over Ukraine is closed. So I flew into Poland, worked a day or two in Warsaw, which is the capital of Poland, um, then I got on a bus to Przemyśl, which I'm not saying that town correctly, but that's as close as I can get, which is sort of one of the major borders between Ukraine and Poland right now. And it's, um, where the railway system comes in and the railway system in Ukraine is doing most of the, the back carry weight for refugees right now. Um, I worked there for like two days, kind of covering, you know, the, the situation at the border. Then I went into Lviv. Um, which is the ma- the biggest major city in Ukraine nearest to the Polish border. It's like an ancient city. It's like one of the few that's like never really seen a huge amount of war. Um, it's, it's a big city, but it's not huge. Right now it's huge though, because obviously a lot of Ukrainians who don't necessarily want to flee the country entirely are now in Ukraine. So there's like no hotel rooms, obviously. And a lot of news media is there. So you're talking like no rooms. It's really, and it's, packed all the time and you know there's still a curfew so it like I feel it changes so I I won't even guess what it is right now but like when I was there I think it was 10 and you'd see people it would hit like nine o'clock and everybody's like oh crap we got to get back um so I spent a while in Lviv covering um everything I could refugees a lot of about refugees was mostly what I worked on there um then I went to Kiev the central city of Ukraine um which is more or less where the war was happening at that time obviously things have kind of Russians have kind of moved out of there recently. But when I was there, that was still like a pretty ongoing war. Um, due to logistic issues, I wasn't able to get to the front line like I would have liked. We were still able to get to where Russians had hit towns with missiles, bombings. We were stopped um, by the Ukrainian military informing us that like down the road there were Russians. So we definitely still got out there. But I wasn't in like, you know, cities like Maripool that are just decimated. I, I wasn't at that kind of stuff just from uh, basically money restraint um so i spent some time in kiev um god i hope i'm saying that right i do apologize to anyone if i get the towns backwards i've been hearing the russian pronunciation and the ukrainian pronunciation the whole time i've been writing the ukrainian ones but i don't exactly know how to say it um i spent some time in kiev um then i ended up back in lviv for a little bit and then back in poland for a little bit and then eventually back to the u.s
1: can you describe what what you saw and what you heard while you were there
0: Um, It just depends on where you were. And and the interesting thing was like Lviv more or less is is kind of untouched by the war as far as like damage goes. Now, of course there was that fuel depot hit. Um, I was actually on a train headed to Kiev on that day, which I don't know if that's good luck or bad luck that I wasn't there, but it was really one of the only times Lviv has been hit. That being said, like, obviously, that's where the refugees are coming through. There's a ton of Ukrainian military. There's training grounds. Um, the railway goes through there. So it's it's this big hub right now, even though it's kind of in this, you know, I guess, air quotes, safe zone. Um, so there's – that's a really dip- different atmosphere than Kiev. Like Lviv, even though it has a curfew, there's like nightlife. All the cafes are open. There's tons of people. But at like two o'clock in the afternoon, the air raid sirens go off. Um, In Kiev, most of the city is completely empty. I mean, you can walk down. I walked across, and I don't think anyone's been able to say this since like the 2014 revolution over there. I walked across like the six to eight lane major road that goes straight through the middle of the town, like through the central square. You can just walk straight across it. And normally you'd have to go like into underground passageways to get to the other side. Or like wait at a crosswalk or whatever, but like, no, you could just walk. It was, it was empty, just empty. And the whole time and you're in Kiev, not the, not constantly every minute, but to the point where you just get completely used to it, it's just like massive explosions. And because you're in the middle of a city, it's hard to tell exactly where they're coming from. So like, I kept thinking, why aren't I hearing this coming from the North? Like these noises, but I was like, oh, cause it's bouncing off building after building after building. So like one explosion might sound like three or it might sound like a different direction and you'd just get used to it. But then there'd be an explosion that would shake the windows. And it was like, ooh, was that a big one or a close one? And then sometimes a couple of times I heard gunshots and it's like, okay, why are there gunshots in the middle of Kiev when the war is like out at Ipper? Um, but same thing in L- Lviv, I, there, well, you wouldn't ha- ever hear an explosion in Lviv, but multiple nights in, you know, like right around curfew, I was in my little rental and you just hear gunfire. And what it turned out to be, at least on one instance, was someone was flying a, like a drone, not like the giant military drones, just like a quadcopter or whatever, um, over a, like a military base and all the soldiers just unloaded trying to shoot this thing down. And of course, we never got confirmation if they did or didn't, but yeah, you just like, sitting in your little room, in my little room, just, like, typing away at, like, 8.30 at night, trying to get my article, and all of a sudden there's just gunfire everywhere. And, of course, because I make good decisions, like, going to a war zone, I go, where's my camera? And I grab my camera and I run out of my building, like, down the street trying to find where this gunfire is. Um, so no matter where you were, you could definitely, like, feel the effects of the war, but it was in really, really different ways. So it just depended where you were. And, then like, obviously the border... You were in Poland. The war isn't in Poland, at least at this time. But um, that's where the refugees are. So that's where you're seeing people like holding on to like their all their personal belongings in like Ikea bags or plastic bags or, you know, sit, like one family member sitting on like six suitcases while the other family members try to go like figure out what's the next step. Because so many people got to the border and they're like, what do I do now? Like I made it out of war into Poland – but, like, what now? Do I stay in Poland? Do I try to, like... And then that's, like, a whole nother battle for those people, unfortunately.
1: I really like how you describe that. That must be such an eerie f- feeling when air raid sirens go off.
0: Well, and, and the, the weird thing was, too, like, when I got to Lviv, that was still... Not early, nor, because I was late. But you could still see quite a few people who would, like, run into shelters or at least get undercover or get away from windows. Um, but after it be like five days of air alarms or air raid sirens and nothing happening, people get pretty bold. So like the air raid siren goes off and everybody like looks around and you can hear all the, f- the cell phones. Cause obviously they're using their network to like, say like take shelter immediately. And everybody's like, so you want an ice cream or <laughs> what? Um, and then of course, you know, all the, the TV stations that are live are like, there's another air raid siren. You're like, it's the sixth today. Like, I think there was one day where we had six in like a day. So it is hard, like, you know, you get used to it, but then of course the, the Russians did actually hit the the fuel depot. So when I came back from Kiev, which was like days after the thing, an air raid siren went off and I noticed a very different atmosphere. Like that air raid siren went went off and probably 70% of people were like, at least taking notice, trying to like head towards a shelter, going in a building. Whereas like before it was like the opposite, you know, 30% were like, oh, we got to, be safe, and 70% were like, don't worry about it, kind of swapped on them, like, so that was a, definitely an interesting thing, and there's also, because Lviv is where refugees are going, there's people who were coming from Maripool, Odessa, Kharkiv, Kiev, who, when they heard an air raid siren, it meant probably something was, like, coming, whereas Lvivs would set off air raid sirens much more like, hey, there's, like, it, it was hard, I, I don't want to say anything, like, I, I know officially, because Ukraine's very tight-lipped about some things. But what I did talk to them, they explained that like in Kiev, an air raid siren meant missile was coming and they they were going to try to shoot it down. In Lviv, an air raid siren might just mean that there's like a high altitude drone or an airplane or or there's a missile, but they don't exactly know where it's going. So you end up with these air raid sirens where the the siren goes off for like five minutes, but technically the, the air raid is like two hours. And then they'll sound another a different alarm to say, like, okay, it's stopped. Whereas in Kiev and other, te- other cities in Ukraine, if the sign went off, that meant, like, it's coming or whatever's happening is happening right now, but then it was over. So it was, that was, like, a totally different experience from Lviv to, to other cities in Ukraine.
1: Seems like a really confusing and chaotic time.
0: Yeah. And, and Lviv, and I wrote a, a little bit of, on this, was, like, Lviv is actively trying to be a respite. So like people that like run the parks, like the city parks or the museums, they're doing like free, obviously the museums are closed because of the war, but you know, you can still go look at a church or look at a historic building or go to a park. Um, So at least for a long time, I don't know if they're still doing it, but at the time I was there, they were offering free tours, obviously in Ukrainian, this wasn't for tourists to like, so people could go explore Lviv. And it was like, that was an active thing that the government was doing because it was like these people just fled like Russian invasion violence and they've come to the city. They need something to do. And we have this really historic, pretty city with a bunch of parks. And if people are willing to like volunteer their time to like lead a tour group around. So they were actively like, they acknowledge that Lviv is this like safe haven for people. But at the same time, they're not like, you're not getting away from the war. They're not trying to pretend like it's not happening. Like, there's signs everywhere. There's sandbags. There's fully armed military everywhere. So it's not that that they're trying to, like, give you a place, oh, the war doesn't exist, everything's fine. But it is definitely, like, a respite, a place of, like, you know, where it's, it's, it's trying to be a celebration of Ukrainian culture at a time when Ukrainian culture is quite literally under attack by the Russians. So not just the war, but they're trying to call them Nazis. They're trying to say that they're... The Ukrainians are committing, like, genocide against the Romas, all that kind of stuff. So, like, right now is a really defensive time for Ukrainian culture alongside military.
1: What did some of the signs say?
0: I'm not good enough at Ukrainian to tell you, but I can say, to the credit of the Ukrainians, these are not people that beat around the bush. One of my photos that did better than, than some of my others was there's a, a a paint. It's like a poster art of a Ukrainian woman shoving a pistol in Putin's mouth. Like that's very direct. That's not a they're not hinting around <laughs> anything there. Um and then you know, it's a lot of like glory to Ukraine, that kind of stuff, like very like patriotic but very like anti-Russian invasion. Um and it's very, you know, they're the ones that got attacked, so they're fighting. So you don't see a lot of stop the war. Like I saw a lot of stop the war when I was in Poland. In Ukraine, obviously, would, if the war stopped, that would be great. But there was much more of an incentive on, like, fight and defend Ukraine because they can't stop the war. It wasn't their choice in the first place. So that was kind of a difference in, in signage. It was like uh, – the one thing I would say, and they directly did this for Western media, was there were signs everywhere about um, close the sky. That was probably the biggest message. It was, like, on every government building in English – close the skies because Russian air power is just greater than Ukraine's. And I think Ukraine really, at least when I was there, had a feeling like we're making footwork on the ground, but we don't have the air force that, that Russia does. So like, if you're not going to come and help us, you know, with, with ground troops, close the sky and let us do the fighting. That was like a, that was a really distinct message that was very phrased for Westerners, like written in English around where the media was, major roads, billboards in English so that we would see it and photograph it.
1: It seems very purposeful that it was in English.
0: Anytime you saw something in English, I took it with like a little grain of salt because I'm like, well, I know the audience is not a Ukrainian, you know. Um, That being said, it's also like, okay, that's the message that Ukraine is trying to get out. I'm going to state that that's the message Ukraine wants to get out. But... I think especially with the close the sky thing, it was definitely more of like a pleading like, no, for like, we really, really want this. It's going to make a huge difference for us. That was probably the thing the Ukraine wanted the most publicly, at least.
1: How how was media treated while you were there, specifically Western media?
0: I was there and I'm hesitant to overly criticize because there are saboteurs. Really? I mean, that's a real problem. That being said, I think I got it worse than some other people. I'm sure I got it way easier than some, but worse than others.
1: Since this is a podcast, you should describe what you look like.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm, I I was very often mistaken for Ukrainian, but I was apparently also very often mistaken for Russian. (laughs) Uh, very, very, I'm a blonde haired, blue eyed, uh, five, five individual who is of military age. So I was under suspicion at all times. Um, and basically, depending on where you were in, in Lviv, things were a lot easier as a reporter. There was a lot more press, so you didn't tend to get singled out because, like, the, if, if, if the military is checking paperwork and there's 13 camera people at the train station, you know, you could see they're like, okay, you have paperwork? Yes. All right. Thank you. That's all I'm done. That's all I need. You have it. I don't care. You're good. Kiev was the opposite. Kiev got to the point where I was like, I don't know how to function as a reporter anymore. What do you mean? Because every, and this is not really a joke, every intersection I was being stopped, surrounded. What's your paperwork? What are you doing? Where are you going? Let me see your photos. And then you go through all that and that was fine. And then you go to the next intersection and have the exact same interaction. it would take like, it took extremely long time to get anywhere. And, And like where my little rental was, In Kiev, there was only one road I could walk. All the others, if I tried to walk down it with cameras, they'd be like, "No, can you like go all the way around?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'll walk around the half an hour it's going to take me to get to my." And I get that, like I'm not, you know, but it it was especially as a solo. And I get why that would be more suspicious. It's very is very unusual even over there for reporters to be alone, Um, especially with big cameras. So I definitely was like the, you know, I don't know how to say it. I understand why suspicion was being raised around me. That being said, it's still tiring. It's really, really tiring. Especially, like, I was taking photos of they sand their sandbagging, like, s- historic landmarks so that they're not just hopefully not destroyed. Um, and I was taking photos of one covered in sandbags, and I thought, I'm going to jail for the night because <laughs> apparently they didn't want me to take photos of that. And I thought I was totally fine to take photos of that. It's like a historic monument on Google Maps, like... It's everywhere. It's it's on um,
1: Every like tourist travel brochures for Kiev yeah.
0: uh, or for Kiev. And, you know, like next thing I know, I'm surrounded by Ukrainian military who now have my passport, my press pass, my Ukrainian press credentials. They're making phone calls. And eventually we got someone spoke like enough English. And he's like, where's your fixer? And I'm like, like ex- fixers are expensive. You don't walk or like – Freelancers don't walk around with, with uh, fixers all day, every day in the middle of the city. And they're like, oh, like this is a problem. And I'm like, I don't know what you – like it's a statue, man. Like I don't have any military gear. Like I don't know what to do. And that was like – that one took like half an hour to resolve. And then, and then that night we almost didn't make it back because I went to meet some reporters. We almost didn't make it back for curfew and that – there was a whole incident at a checkpoint that was like really worrying to me where I was like, this was like, we this. that was our fault. That was totally our fault that we were out that late. But I was like, this is, this is extremely, this is getting to the point where it's extremely difficult just to like operate at all or do my job.
1: What was going through your mind as you ap- approached each checkpoint?
0: Well, it's just, it, cause you don't know. Are they going to check me or am I going to get a guy that speaks English? Am I going to get, a Ukrainian military? Am I going to get a territorial defense? Am I going to get a policeman? Am I going to get just some guy that's guarding the street? And like all of those pose different risks. Ukrainian military was usually the best. That was usually your lowest chance of like an issue because we carried with us to cover Kiev and frontline stuff. You needed to have military accreditation, which as far as I understand was like a background check. They checked that you were really working for who you said you were working for and that kind of thing. Um, which was tough for a lot of freelancers to get, and I very much thank um, my agent, my wire agency, for getting me some, some very dedicated paperwork to be like, no, really, this is our reporter, he's working. Um, so a lot of times the military would see your, med- med- uh, your excuse me, your military accreditation. Most of the time that was good enough, as long as you had a passport with the same name. Other times they'd even call the number. What you had to be more concerned about was territorial defense, because they're more. I don't want to call them like a national guard, but they don't have nearly as much training. So they didn't even know what the accreditation was sometimes. So they're looking at this thing and they're like, so you in the art, you know, are you military? And it's like, no, no, no. I'm just like, I'm a, that they made me more nervous than anybody else. And then the police were like pretty cool with it. Usually Um, the issue with the police was like, with them, they didn't really want to check your paperwork. So if they were checking your paperwork, you probably did something they didn't really like. That being said, it was like, okay. But I mean, it got to the point where you wouldn't even put your paperwork away. You just like have it like out all the time. And like I said, I get the, I get the suspicion and I don't want to criticize that. But as far as being a member of the press, it's just you get exhausted where you're like, I don't want to go photograph the center of Kiev today or wherever because I know I'm going to get stopped 13 times. It's going to take me like an hour to get down there. I have to hike back <laughs> to like, to make sure that I get back on time for the curfew or whatever it is. Um, or you could just pay for a fixer all the time, which if you're a, a giant mega news corporation, that's awesome. But us freelancers can't afford 100 $200 a day to have somebody like walk around with you just so that you don't get and you probably will get stopped almost just as much anyway, so.
1: And I also want to talk about, I mean, here you are, you're a freelancer, you're by yourself. And as you said, that's not super, that's a little bit unusual. Can you talk about some of the challenges of being a lone freelancer with limited resources?
0: Yeah, so I I mean, I hate to say it, but money is definitely like a big influence on access. If you have a really good fixer. They and just, can you and,
1: talk about what a fixer oh, is? Sorry,
0: yeah, let's, let's. Uh, so a fixer is is a complicated job that is probably a generic term, but basically it's usually a translator, somebody that can speak the na- like in this case, Ukrainian and English or whatever the reporter speaks. So we had like a lot of French. I think France had the most journalists there of any country. So obviously if you could speak French and Ukrainian, you were going to get a job. Um, English obviously being like second to that. So usually they'll translate for you. If they're a really good fixer, they probably have contacts that either were a reporter or maybe they're like, uh, they were ex-police, something like that. Someone that's going to have contacts. They're going to be able to put you, oh, oh, do you want to get to this town? Okay, let me talk to some people. That's what a good fixer is going to do. They'll probably also drive you. Um, most fixers will have a car and drive you around. In some cases, you'll have to hire a driver too. Obviously, then that starts adding more expense because then you have to pay for a driver as well. Um, but basically, they're kind of a facilitator to get you around, get you to things. Now, those... Really good fixers tend to be very in very high demand and you know and, and as a freelancer, I think a lot of money obviously like it 's probably not that big a deal for ABC News or i shouldn 't even say a company, but like some major corporation to pay someone one hundred two hundred dollars a day. but as a freelancer, I know i 'm going to sell the article for fifty dollars, so paying a driver and a and a fixer one hundred dollars each a day so that I could make and and with a big article, you might have to go two or three places. So that adds up really, really fast. So unfortunately, money's part of it. Now, that being said, fixers deserve to be paid. It's just, as a freelancer, you really have to like, you're like, okay, I ho- I hope this town is worth it because this is the, like, one of the few times I'm going to be able to pay for a driver and a, and then a lot of times- And like, this is wh-
1: coming, like, out of pocket, right? All
0: out of pocket for freelancers, especially. Um, what we try to do as freelancers, if you do know people, and I would really encourage if anybody wants to get into this, know people, if you can- Um, I ended up meeting a couple of people I really liked. We worked well together. We ended up splitting and it's still quite expensive, but at least there were three of us in the car, you know, so it was one third the cost instead of a hundred percent. But it's still kind of tough and you couldn't get a not great fixer. And I think we got a not very great fixer kind of wasted our money. Um, We still got some really good work done, but I don't know if it was a communication breakdown or just they're, it, you could get a not great fixer is the way I'll say it uh, without being too accusatorial, but it's very damaging to get one that's not good. Um, and then second to that is just getting access to stuff and a, a fixer could facilitate a lot of that, but obviously not everything. Um, so I forgot the question. <laughs>
1: uh, just the, the challenges of being a, oh, alone right. freelancer. Uh, the,
0: the part, the second part of being alone and, and some people are, tough people that are just totally happy to go completely alone and I hats off to them. Um, I think especially when you add the freelance knowing you're not getting paid, probably not getting paid for this adds another level of stress. Um, but being alone is really hard because you're going out to very stressful situations, spending all day in very stressful situations, coming back by yourself to, you know, realistically probably like a rented apartment or a hotel room. Um, I was saying in like Airbnbs, so I wasn't even seeing other reporters. It's not like there was a lobby where I'd run into people. It was like, okay, I'm going to walk up that one road where I'm allowed to walk up back into my apartment, cook dinner, file, edit photos of the traumatic thing you probably just photographed, write a story about it, go to bed, and, and then, no, sorry, not go to bed, file. Then you got to figure out what am I doing tomorrow? What's the next story? What's happening? Who can I contact? And it gets taxing when it's just you doing all that. And and I actually met freelancers who by all technicals, you know, stuff are working alone, but they have another freelancer that's their friend that they're working together or splitting a hotel room or they're splitting the room with like a writer or someone or a videographer. Like a lot of times I'll see videographers and photographers work together. They're basically after the same thing, but they're not technically competing. So it's a really, you know, or writers, that's a great combo because you're not directly uh, competition, but you both kind of want to go to the same stuff. But just the fact that you're with someone seems to take a huge amount of like toll off people. Like I was working with a photographer and he had a writer friend and they were working together. And it was like, he was going to come out with us to see this town that had been bombed. And his friend was a little more like nervous about the war. So he was going to stay and, and make phone calls to get into like the, the shelters in Ukraine, vet hospitals, or, you know, any, those kind of stories. So like he could stay behind and do all this groundwork and all this research while we're out doing this other story. And then it's like, but when you're by yourself, you're trying to do both of those and it it can get to be overwhelming. And of course, the thing is that going back to money, if you're doing it all on your own, it takes a lot more time. Well, then you're needing to pay for food and rent and everything for another day. So that adds up. So it's, it's really, really tough to go alone. I totally met some people that can do it. Hats off to them. Maybe in like five years of experience, I'll be like, oh, I can do it totally alone. But it, it's genuinely emotionally exhausting. Just on like a, just on a, you're alone all the time in a very stressful situation and you're totally responsible for your safety and transportation. And, and there's so many unknowns. I mean, one of my constant fears was what if the train tracks, not a train, but what if the train tracks get hit by the Russians? I don't have a way to get out of Kiev back to Lviv.
1: You you've covered conflict outside of the country before, and and he, here locally. Can you talk about your your prior experience and how it was different than in than in Ukraine?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, basically, so one of the first real like heavy photojournalism things I got to cover was in Bangkok in 2013. They overthrew their their current government. And now it's a military, I think to this day is still a military, um, government at the moment. Um, and that was, that wasn't a war. It was a revolution. Um, people were shot. I did see quite a bit of violence over there, but it wasn't like a full out war. It was unarmed people going up against police and the police were primarily vast, primarily using water cannons, rubber bullets. There were some real bullets in there, but that was not, it was not like a war. um, in the U.S., I covered you know Black Lives Matter riots. I covered some pretty some far right rallies that got pretty heated. I've had a lot of guns pointed at me, but that's always like on the borderline of becoming like a really really violent outburst. Ukraine is a war, and I talked with reporters who'd been covered covered Syria for years, and and they were like, no, this is no one's covered anything like this since like World War II or maybe the Korean War.
1: Thanks so much for sharing and just being open about what you, hope, what you hope your photos do and just the role that you hope to play as a journalist. It's, it's, it's just helpful to, to hear.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's why I wanted to do this, and I appreciate you sitting down with me, is, is I want people to understand kind of why it is that r- reporters do this. Because, you know, and, and there's always going to be that example. There are pl- probably glory hounds. Out there, and and I've heard I actually didn't, other than the the can you kiss him thing, which upset me. Um, I didn't see any instances, and I met a lot of reporters, and I didn't meet any instances of anybody who was out there for their own self glorification. That being said, and I know people that know people that saw that kind of thing, um, but I really wanted to share at least my experience, and and hopefully a similar experience to a lot of my colleagues on why it is that we we choose to get on a plane for 14 hours to get on a bus for eight hours to get on a train for five hours so that we can go to a, a war zone so. <laughs> because it's not a normal choice um but it's one that i think if we do our job right we've earned the ability to do that so thank you time thank you lucia <laughs> That's it for today's show. Please visit us online at thisisreno.com to see Ty's photo galleries of the Ukrainian war.